Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that during this time that we have gathered together to learn about the weapons of our adversaries and to find ways uh, through your word and encouragement to cling to the life that you have given us, that we would feel your support, that we would know your encouragement, and that you would guide us on the path of peace. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is our third week, and we are in chapter 9 of the Screwtape Letters. So if you, will, if you uh, need one, there are some discussion questions uh, in a format that we've been using that are over there on the table. I will be very loosely following this for today. Um, but let's go ahead and open up to chapter, or to letter 9. Letter 9 is interesting. In this letter, you'll remember that screw tape is reminding Wormwood of the law of undulation. Right? Where the human has experiences, where all humans have experiences of profound uh, mountaintop experiences, right, spiritually, and also being in what we would call the valleys, uh, where things are dry and we feel spiritually dry. And so his advice to Wormwood is to use this period of time to introduce sensual pleasures. Right? In fact, this is exactly what he says. If you want to follow along with me, he says, uh, Screw tape writing to Wormwood says, I have always found that the trough periods of the human undulation provide excellent opportunity for all sensual temptations. Now, I guess our first question as we approach this is, why do you think that is? What do you think it is about dry seasons? I mean, do we all, we're all on the same page when we're talking about dry seasons, right? What does it mean if he's spiritually dry? Uh, spiritual dryness can be, um, you know, the blah. blah, blah, exactly, blah. You know, the prayer life that maybe was what's so rich and varied and, and felt like an actual dialogue. You ever been in a prayer where, where it's not just, you know, you're not just talking out into nothingness, but there's, there's a give and take that that kind of seems to dissipate. And you're praying the same way. You might even be saying the same prayers, but it's just not taking hold as it once did. Anybody experienced that ever? You experience a time when you're reading scripture and sometimes it feels like it's communicating exactly what you need to hear and directly to your heart and is moving you to respond. And then sometimes it's just not. And you're reading it out of obligation or a sense of duty. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are times when um, speaking about the impact of Jesus Christ on your life flows freely from your lips and you're engaged and you're passionate and you're, you know, you're just talking about what he's doing in your life. And there's other times where it's the furthest thing from you. This is spiritual dryness. And so during the season, again, Wormwood is encouraged to make opportunity of sensual temptations. Now, that word could make us all comfortable, right? Because we just typically, right? I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest about that. We think of just primarily physicality, but it can mean a lot of things, right? And appeal to senses. Things that, are, things, things that you know, move you or draw you in. And so, again, my question is, why do you think it's easier for sensual temptations to take hold in dry seasons? What do you all think? Yes, Pam. When you feel alone, you're vulnerable. And you might to someone that is not right or something that is not right. So when, you're, when you feel alone, you're vulnerable and you might look to kind of fill that loneliness with something or someone that isn't, isn't what you should really be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. 
What else do y'all think? It's exciting, right? I mean, when you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're firing on all cylinders spiritually, when you're walking in step with the Spirit, right? Paul tells us, right? Keep in step with the Spirit. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit, it is life-giving, it is exciting, it is filling, but when, you, when, that's, you know, when that's gone, when it feels like it's gone, you're looking for that level of excitement, right? Thrill-seeking you know, would be, I guess, kind of like the young, the young 20-year-old male version of that, right? That adrenaline junkie looking for something to kind of keep things going. Right now, I think people use you know, social media and the likes that they get to try to get that sustained feeling of um, meaning or happiness, but, but that's it. I mean, it's, you know, it's like lighter fluid on dying coals, is what the central, the central temptation is. You know, when you, has anybody ever here ever built a fire poorly? You can raise your hand, all right? You built a fire poorly, right? I've seen this happen too many times um, where people take giant logs, they try to, you know, put them on there, and then they crumple up some, like, paper towels or paper, and they put them underneath, and then they, you know, just drench it in lighter fluid, and they light it, and they're hoping that this turns into a sustainable fire, Right? And then when it doesn't, you know, because all the kindling gets burned up immediately, it's like, well, get the lighter fluid again. Let's do it again. And so you keep, you know, you keep dash, you know, I mean, the real trick, obviously, as you know, to build a fire is you start with your, you know, your, your really easily burning kindling, and then you have stuff that's a little bigger than that that catches, and medium-sized twigs that catch, and then it all kind of builds up into this roaring flame, right? Well, when you're trying to satisfy yourself spiritually, you know, you're, again, you're just sitting there with lighter fluid and you keep dashing it without actually building up the base of what it needs to be a fire. And sometimes preparation for these experiences is gathering the necessary things in order to have that eventually catch, right? Y'all follow me when I say that? So again, sensual temptations can really derail us. Or it's like coffee, right? The only legal drug. Um, you, know, you know, coffee is, you know, Coffee is one of those things where if you are perfectly healthy and you are getting a perfect amount of sleep, you don't need it, right? But, but it allows you to sustain an unhealthy life because it's quick injections of getting your heart rate going. I'm a coffee drinker. I'm not pointing fingers, right? I'm not going to tell you how many I have a day, but it's a significant amount. So, again, it's that same idea of quick injections. Now, let's move on to uh, something else that I thought was really interesting. They start talking about the different pleasures that you can engage in and, and that he can be engaged in to kind of detract him. And, and, and uh, Screwtape says, referring to God, God made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So if demons can't produce pleasures, right, if, if, and, and pleasures we mean like the full goodness of life, what, what can they do instead? If they can't produce them, if they can't make them, what's the strategy? What, what can they do instead? Distract, Distract you? Well, Absolutely. Try, they can try and draw you into uh, abuse of them. Uh, draw you into an abuse of those. Absolutely. Yep. Distract you from genuine pleasures or cause you to use pleasure, uh, pleasures improperly. You know, if you go to enough, Yes. To make it a counterfeit God, right? To, to make it from being something that is, you know, in its proper place in your life to being the ultimate thing in your life and having the throne. Uh, if you've been to, been to this church uh, at any long period of time, you would know that we always talk about sin. The Greek word of sin is hamartia, right? And hamartia is very simply missing the mark, right? Which basically means the level of sin is if you're not doing something perfectly, you have sinned because you have missed the mark. Which is really, if you think about, 
you know, if you think about the implications of that for your daily life, it puts us all in a really difficult spot. But that idea of hamartia, of sin, of missing the mark, is really all that they have to do with pleasure. Using it improperly, right? Having it in its improper place or the improper focus. And it doesn't take much. Um, sexual activity, we're all adults here. Sexual activity um, is a pleasure, but sexual activity outside of marriage is something that the Bible does not speak highly of. Uh, Hebrews 13.4, you know, keep the marriage bed undefiled. Matthew 5.28, these, you know, these ideas of sexual, you know, if you even look lustfully at a person, then you're committing adultery. So again, it's a pleasure, but it's a pleasure in its proper place. And to be misused or used outside of that is sin. Drinking, right? I mean, Jesus drank wine. We're Episcopalians. We can say that and acknowledge it and, and, and think it's okay. Um, you know, Jesus drank wine, but drinking to excess, Ephesians 5.18, right? Let's not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Or drinking in order to fulfill that need, right? To put it in its improper place, then all of a sudden that's a pleasure that's put into the sinful category. Right? We're all on the same page about this stuff? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things where all it takes is just a little bit of misuse. Exercise. This is interesting. 1 Timothy 4.8. Uh, Paul is talking, Paul's writing to his protege Timothy, and he says, you know, uh, physical training is of some value. And then he goes on to talk about the benefit of godliness. A spiritual training is being of ultimate value. You know, even physical training, even exercise can be a way to try to, you know, put something in its wrong position. I mean, it's interesting. You all know I got a, um, a, a Peloton, which is ridiculous for me to have, but I, but I got one. Um, and so, you know, because again, I, I, can't, I fell into that uh, common fallacy that if you buy the right equipment, you'll start using it. Yeah, I know. You all, you all know. Um, you've been there. Uh, so, so I got it, and I, and I was doing a ride uh, two nights ago, and it was interesting the person who was, you know, speaking, and I, I don't like people who like, you know, because you're watching somebody on a screen, and they're like encouraging, you know, like, pick it up, you got it. And I'm like, be quiet, I'm trying to focus. And then, you know, and then what did this thing she said, which is so interesting, is, you know, I used to have this life in finance, and I couldn't hack it, and it was just too much for me, so I came here, and now I'm at peace, and I'm surrounded by a great community of people who are encouraging and forgiving and give me a sense of self and a place to belong. And I said, oh boy, I'm in a cult. Um, but, but the truth of that and what's so sad about that is, is that's, that's physical activity being brought into the wrong dimension, isn't it? Right? It, it, this is now the ultimate thing in this person's life. Well, what happens when that person develops an illness so that she can no longer do this? She's in trouble. You all see what I'm saying? So again, um, all it has to do is be perverted. And so, you know, they can encourage pleasures at improper times, right? So, so there are times when it's not time, this is, this is from the chapter, when it's not time to do that. Romans 14, 15 talks about this idea that, um, you know, Christians, we have a lot of license to engage in various things because we're no longer under the law. But if what we do causes someone else to sin, that's a problem. You guys tracking me with what I'm saying? And so, again, something might not be sinful in itself, but it becomes sinful if it's done at the improper time. Yes? It, it kind of gets self-perpetuated because when you're pursuing pleasures that are not the right types of pleasures, they're not as satisfying. Yeah. He, he says that. And then, so, the individual still wants the pleasures. So, 
he redoubles his efforts to get that. The law of diminishing returns, right? Yeah, when you engage in pleasure, it becomes not as satisfying over time, and so you try to engage in more of it. I mean, we're all familiar with this, right? Every single person in this room is, is familiar. Absolutely. No, that, that is how you get, that's how you, you know, led wayward, right? I mean, so again, there's, all demons can do is encourage pleasures at the wrong times, in the wrong ways. You know, again, we talked about sexual behavior being confined to the marriage, confined to the marriage bed. That's, that is in scripture. And by the way, if you hear me reference scripture, that's because I'm under the assumption that scripture is, is authority, right? It's not to be negotiated with. Um, uh, they can encourage it in degrees, right? Drunkenness or gluttony, some food, some drink is okay. Too much, not okay. Um, and, and to get to what you're saying, you know, this, was, this is one of the quotes in here that was terrifying to me, and I don't know if you all caught it, uh, in this, if it hits you the same way that it hit me. I hope it did. Um, to get to a man's soul and give him nothing in return is really what gladdens our father's heart. That... I got, I got, you know, that gives me, that gives me the chills. It really does. That is, but that is, that is the aim. You all familiar with the, um, the story of the monkey's paw? Jerry Jacobs, it was, it was this um, short story of, you know, a man who brings a monkey's paw in. And if you have a monkey's paw, you can get three wishes. And the man says, it's cursed. The wishes will backfire. And so in the story, they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll try it anyway. And so the son, um, in the family, the adult son, he makes a wish that he's going to get 200 pounds because that's all he needs to finish paying off his mortgage. And the next day he goes to the factory and he's killed. And the factory sends his family a check for 200 pounds for the accident. I mean, we're all familiar with this type of tale, right? A genie gives you three wishes, but those wishes are cursed. And that's a lot like what demons want to do, right? They'll give you your heart's desires, but be careful what you wish for. That's another way to say it, right? You're familiar with that phrasing. Be careful what you wish for. Because we don't, you know, we don't know the extent of the double edge of this, the, uh, a Faustian pact, right? That, that's, another, that's another way to look at it. Um, and then I want to, I'm, we're spending a lot of time on this chapter, but I do want to touch on this too. Well, do you have any thoughts about that, by the way, before I move on? Anybody have anything that want to throw out? Yes. Large. Sometimes, uh, you know, exercise can be a good thing, but if you do it to excess or you don't uh, minister to your spouse or your family, you don't want to hear about family problems and stuff that's easier to go out for a bike ride or a run, then that, you know... It's Absolutely. Exercise used as avoidance, yes. just like working in your garage can be used as avoidance, just like anything, or anybody know, you know, you're familiar with all of these things. Any of these things can be used as, as avoidance of what of what you're supposed to be facing. Absolutely. So how about this one? Uh, when Screwtape says, if you can get him, the patient, to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. I don't know about you. I will confess that I have been guilty of thinking that someone is too exuberant about you know, like, like, you know, you're somebody who's just, who's just so on fire about Jesus that they just go on. And you're like, okay, that's great, but, you know, let's, let's cool it. You're making me uncomfortable. Um, which is absurd, right? If there's anything not to take in moderation, it's the Lord. You know, like, drink deeply from the Lord. My goodness. But, but if you ever, I mean, let's be honest about this. We're, we're a room full of sinners. Have you ever felt that somebody was too passionate or too exuberant about their faith? And I don't mean falsely emotive. I just mean that they're radical about their devotion. Every conversation turns back to Jesus. Right? And it's amazing, right? It's like, well, that's all very well and good, but, you know, let's, let's be reasonable people here. 
You know, I mean, that's, we, we are in the clutches at that point. Would you all agree with me? Do you see, do you see my point in that? So, so here's, a, here's a follow-up question to this. What is it, what is it you think that dulls our passion? Because you've all, I mean, I assume many of us have felt an extreme passion for the Lord or what he's done in our lives or the way that he has seen us and, and drawn us to himself. But what do you think dulls that passion? What do you think kind of causes that to get hazy or, or, or foggy or draw us back? Do you have any idea? When things are going well and you don't need him, right? Yeah, sure. Or a big disappointment. A big disappointment? Yeah, when you were looking, yeah, when you were looking for something from him and you felt like he didn't come through for you and, and it feels like a betrayal or a break in the relationship. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, that can be true for a lot of us. It's interesting. Listen to what Revelation 3 says about this idea of not being very passionate. Uh, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So again, to Janet's point, this idea of um, being full, having a lack of need, is a real way for us to have our passions dulled. And then there's one more thing I want to touch on that actually brings us back to uh, uh, a few letters ago. Look at what he says near the end of this one. Uh, No wonder I can't find the quotes. I'm in chapter 8. Here it is. Look at what he says near the end of the letter. You see the idea. Keep his mind off the plain antithesis between true and false. Keep his mind off the plain antithesis of true or false. You remember we were talking about, let's not think of doctrine in terms of true or false. Let's think of them in other terms that kind of, you know, that kind of disguise the question. And, we, and I, I mentioned, I shouted this from the back, but uh, I wasn't mic'd. Um, and now I have the mic. So, uh, there's a real danger and a real pull and a real deception when we stop looking at things in the Bible as true or not true, but we start looking at them as Useful or not useful. Exclusive, right? That's a word that's thrown around a lot, but it's not a good, and we don't want to be exclusive in the sense that certain people groups are not welcome to experience the gospel, but, but, you know, we can't use that as a defining mark of what we're going to read about in the gospel or not, right? That's not the standard of truth. Um, Harmful. We look at doctrine not as true or false, but as harmful, do you all see what I'm saying? These, these are words that are thrown around all the time, but they don't consi- take in consideration to whether or not you say, yeah, but it's true. You know, your perception is that it's harmful, but it also happens to be true. And it doesn't matter what you or I think about what's true or not true. Truth doesn't change based on our opinions of it, does it? No. I can, I can change my opinion about gravity. I'm still going to be standing right here. I'm not going to start floating off, you know, like, a, like I'm, you know, in a spaceship. Um, equitable, right, is another thing that doesn't deal with true or not true or inequitable. Anachronistic or backwards has nothing to do with true or not true, right? Well, call, you know, Bible needs to keep up with the cultural standards because otherwise it's backwards or anachronistic. Okay, but is it true or false? Do you see what I'm saying? It's getting back to that clarity. All, and you'll, you'll notice this, that throughout the next chapters, what, what screw tape is really encouraging is for things to get murky, right? Father Chris always talks about how God is a God of clarity, 
truth and clarity and directness. And when things start to get murky and we, when we start to lose our footing, that's not his work. You all follow me when I say that? All right, let's move on. We spent way too much time on, on chapter 9. Let's get to chapter 10. So chapter 10, the patient makes some new acquaintances, doesn't he? Has a new friendship. And the friendship is what... And again, this, is, this friendship is one that is a very common association. Would you all kind of agree with the descriptors? Let's look at the descriptors of this friendship. He says, um, I gather that the middle-aged couple who called at his office are just the sort of people we want him to know. Rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. Have you ever run into one of those sorts of people? Perhaps you have been one of those sorts of people. Right? Superficially intellectual. Oh, yes, I know, I know all about this thing. And I had a roommate like this. Um, it was fascinating. He, uh, I think he read one book by... What's that? He had a roommate like that? Or... I, I, I had a roommate, yes. Um, he, maybe he did too. Uh, I had a roommate like that. And um, he, w- he was very bright, but he read one book by Christopher Hitchens. And, by, and because of that book, he superficially dismissed everything that he didn't understand. I had the benefit of being in seminary at the time. And I learned very quickly that the technique to deal with superficially dismissing things is to dig in a little bit. Because the odds are that the person that you're debating doesn't have a full-orbed knowledge of what their points are. They're giving you a quote. So you dig a little bit. What do you mean by that? How does that stand up to this? You just start to, you know, you just start to dig a little bit. Say, well, can you, can you explain that to me in light of this or in context of this? And that seems to fall apart pretty quickly, doesn't it? I mean, we, you know, we live, in, we live in an era of bites. What is, what is, uh, so I'm, I'm not on Twitter, believe it or not. Um, it's what, 140, 280 characters or something like that? And that seems to be the extent of people's knowledge on most subjects. Have you noticed that, right? There was that, there was that meme going around about like, you know, it's interesting. Last week, my friend was, a, uh, was an expert on politics, and now they're an expert on contagious diseases. You know, I mean, it's that kind of thing, right? Um, and, and, and again, that's that superficial knowledge. So here's my question for you. How could, how could these particular social sets become a snare to the new Christian? What is it about these specific things that can become a snare? The description of them is like, they're the cool kids. They're the cool kids, yes. Everybody wants to be cool. Yeah. Accepted by, you know, the, the cool clique. By people who are in the know, right? And they talk about this later, right? The knowing, you know, like the knowing wink or the knowing nod or the, you know, we're, we're in and we have the secret knowledge that nobody else is, is able to have, right? So I thought I saw a hand. So, and, and, I have, and I have to ask you, what social snares or what social sets are snares for you? Everybody's got, I, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody's got a group, and it's very rarely the same group, that they look at and they say, I like to be affiliated with that crowd. They are, they are, that's my tribe. You know, those are the ones that I would like to be like. And they're very different. You know, high school and college are really fun places to kind of see this experiment played out because you have a lot of people who don't have the choice to be together. They're kind of lumped together. Whereas when you're an adult, you can kind of, you know, disassociate yourself into your various groups. And so you have, you know, the stereotypes are what? Like the jocks, right? The athletes who, who value people because of their athletic prowess or their build or whatever physical attributes. You've got your... Um, in college, at least, you kind of have, like, your snobby, maybe semi-Marxist intellectuals, you know, who kind of sit back in the back of the room with, like, um, you know, cigarette holders still, and they're kind of, you know, and you're just like, what are you guys doing? Um, 
You've got like, you know, your um, short fiction, your, your writer crowd, you know, the poets and the writers and they're, you know, and, and none of these groups care about being associated with the other group. If you really want to be a part of the writers group, of the poets group, you're not at all worried about what the athletes think of you. You just don't care, right? If you want to be, if you want to be in the um, overachieving academics group, you don't care what the Bohemian um, Guild thinks of you, right? Like, you just don't care. But everybody's, everybody's got one. Everybody's got one. And, and C.S. Lewis writes about this in detail. If you've never read his essay, The Inner Ring, I would really encourage you to do that because it speaks to this heart of wanting to be accepted into these groups and why they're really dangerous. Um, but what's interesting about this, this group in chapter 10 is maybe the essential danger of this particular group is this idea of flippancy. Flippancy. You know, one of the best ways to combat faith is not a direct confrontation, but to dismiss it as irrelevant. Right? I mean, it's really hard to argue against something with, you know, 2,000 years of deeply impressive intellectuals that have contributed to its theology, that have contributed to its scientific veracity, that have, you know, that have contributed, it, contributed to it taking root in the Western world like the Christian faith. I mean, if you, if you decide to debate the Christian faith, you're going against some absolute intellectual giants, right? Those who invented the concept of science themselves or scientific method, like Robert Bacon, to Blaise Pascal, to uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? And, and, I, and I respect all of us in this room, but not one of us is, is, I would imagine, is on the same plane that they are. And if you think that you are, you can repent of your uh, pride. No, but I'm, I'm kidding. Don't be too angry about that. But, but what I am saying is, you know... Um, but to go against that mountain, I guess the best way to deal with it is to, be, is to flippantly dismiss it, right? Do you all see this kind of tactic play out in other areas rather than engaging with something? Well, it's, it's to say, you know, that they're not current, you know, and that it's Puritanism or old-fashioned, and therefore, how could it, you know, be part of 21st century thought? Yeah, how can it be? It's anachronistic, backwards, puritanical, right? He touches on that word in here, but that was one of their great victories was, you know, calling moral virtues puritanical, um, which, is, which is fascinating, right? Because the ones he lists are real hits to our culture, like charity, even chastity, and temperance. It's just like, oh, yeah, we're not doing so great at those as a culture, are we? Um, so, so, again, this idea of flippancy and redirecting our claims so they're not to be taken seriously. And I think the big warning here that uh, C.S. Lewis is trying to get across is that we have to be careful with the pe people that we associate with. Have you noticed this? Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. There's this group of people, and the uh, Corinthian church was a mess, right? Church of Corinth was a mess. And so, I mean, you can see that in all the letters. And so, Paul, Paul's writing to them again, and I guess there's this group that reminds me a lot of this crowd here, that are the ones who um, know better, right? And this group is denying the resurrection. They're like, yeah, you, you, know, it's, you know the group, right? It's like, um, you want your Bible, but without the miracles sort of thing. It's like, yeah, I'll take Jesus as a good teacher, but not, not with the whole miracle portion. So, Paul's writing to them, this group that denies the resurrection. He's writing to the people who are associating with them, and he says this. He says, you know, basically, like, pay attention, be aware of what's happening. And then he says, he talks about the implications of their belief. 
Like, if, this is, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, let's dig into this. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Another translation, bad company corrupts good character. And it's funny because we think about, well, not for me. I've got it. You know, like, I'm teaching them, I'm helping them, I'm leading them to something better. I'm being a good Christian witness by spending the bulk of my time with people. And that's why the Bible, this is also not the first place it says this, I think it's also in Proverbs, it says, do not be deceived. Whenever scripture says do not be deceived, that means pay close attention because you're going to try to deny what comes next. Right? There's a reason for that in there. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. And then he says, I love it, this is verse 34, um, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. When you're trying to associate and affiliate with these groups of people, are you being an active vocal witness for the Lord or are you going into what this patient is doing and just kind of winking and nodding along, right? It says, um, I don't know if it's this chapter or the next one where he speaks you know, when he should be silent and is silent when he should speak. You know, <clears throat> yes, Jesus, Jesus ate and drank with sinners, right? And Paul says elsewhere in, uh, in uh, I think it's maybe 1 Corinthians 5, but I'm not sure off the top of my head, 2 Corinthians 5. Anyway, he says, um, you know, if you were to not associate with people of the world, you would have to leave the world. So he's like, you know, don't, don't just block yourself off from all people, but be very... Be very attentive to the company that you keep because it, it will affect you. It just will. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Anybody seen that happen? Have you, have you ever been in a place where, and again, screw tape letters cause us to be vulnerable, right? It hits on those parts in us that are, um, it exposes those parts in us that we don't like to see. But have you ever been in the presence of, com in the company of people where you have adopted a different sort of behavior that is maybe foreign to you and certainly foreign to the gospel? Anyone in here? You, can, you don't have to raise your hands. I know there's a camera. But you can, you know, like, but, but you, you know, you can give me that knowing look, right? That wink. Um, but there is... Mob, mob behavior. Mob behavior. And, like, things you would never think of doing or saying, and just because you're involved in this intense mob, you mm -hmm. do. And then... You're absolutely right. Mob behavior. So there, and there's, there's tons of studies on this. And I love... A lot of psychological research, research is just kind of, like, common sense stuff that they decided to um, quantify. But one of them is... You know, they, they had pictures that were covering parts of people, and they would put people in a room, and there were cameras behind the flaps that would cover those parts. And what they found is that people were more likely to see what was behind those flaps if there was more than one person in the room than if they were by themselves. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You wouldn't think so. But it, it's just the way that it is. So again, beware of... Beware of how we associate with others. Um, and again, it's like I love this line from Screwtape. Finally, if all else fails, if you can persuade him in defiance of conscience to continue the new acquaintance on the ground that he is, in some unspecified way, doing these people good by the mere fact of drinking their cocktails and laughing at their jokes, and that to cease to do so would be priggish, tolerant, and of course, puritanical. Right? Well, if I stop associating them, aren't I being judgmental? You know, <clears throat> Scripture also says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. 
That's your, that, that is your duty. Just like you know, the, the illustration we always use, when, when, when the oxygen masks fall in an airplane, who gets the first oxygen mask? No, you do. And then you give it to the person next to you. Because you're no, you're no good. You're no good if you, don't guard your, if you don't guard your life, if you don't guard your heart, if you don't guard your soul. You're just not. So, and then this, is, this goes a little bit off book, so I'm going to talk about it for just a couple of minutes. But I've got one more question for you. How should Christian associations look different than what's in here? Right? If this is the bad example, what is the good example to this? How should Christian associations look different? How should they look different? When Christians get together, how should it look different than what we're seeing here? What do you think? Should it? Yeah. Well, a calm patience in discussion. Calm patience in discussion. Calm patience in discussions. Calm patience in discussion. So, so um, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, not engaging in... Um, Combative I'm language. Back to reading Ann Coulter this morning. Okay. She was talking about the young people today and how they approach uh, kind of confrontation mm-hmm. or discussion with other people who disagree with them. They stamp their feet, they yell and scream and get in people's faces. And you would not expect that in a group of Christians, I don't think. Okay, so yeah, so treating each other with respect and decency and assuming. For the sake of humility, that every person who you're discussing knows something that you don't. I think that's a really good assumption when you go into any conversation. There's not a person in this room who doesn't know a whole bunch of things that I don't know. Right? And you'll never be in a conversation with somebody else who, knows, who doesn't know something that you don't know. Right? There's a lot of double negatives in that. Yes? Do unto others have them do unto you. How about this? How about... When Christians get together talking about Christian things, like Jesus, like mission, like what God's doing in your life. You know, people are already proselytizing when you get together about the best TV show that you've seen or movie that you've seen or concert that you went to or play that you attended or write song or book, right? You're all, everybody's always evangelizing about something, the things that move you and cause you joy. And, I, and again, like, I'm not saying be weird for Jesus, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, I have to shoehorn Jesus into every conversation or I'm not a good Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it in a sense of um, a, a thermometer, not a thermostat, right? As a way of sensing where we are. I mean, it would be very odd if we had a convention of ballet dancers that got together and didn't talk about ballet at some point. Do you all kind of understand what I'm saying when I say that? Like, wouldn't that be odd? What if we're all football players, we're coming together for a conference, you know, and we never mention the game at all? Not our role, not our accomplishments, not what we hope to achieve, not how well our team is doing, none of it. Christian associations, I mean, if our lives, if we all have a commonality, because we're all incredibly different people, if our commonality is that our mission and our purpose, uh, which is, you know, living our lives for the glory of God and ushering in his kingdom here on earth as far as we are able to in his power, if that's all the same for all of us, you would imagine that a status update on how we're doing would not be unreasonable, right? I mean, if that, if that is our joint mission and focus, you would imagine that checking in and saying, by the way, 
haven't been, haven't been keeping in step with the Spirit like I should be. Can, we, you know, can I offer that to you all in prayer, right? It, it's not always positive. Sometimes it's, I had the greatest conversation with someone at 7-Eleven. And he just came up to me and asked for prayer. And I was like, God, why did you do this? And do you, do you see what I'm saying? Sharing these sort of stories and these sort of things? It'd be very odd if Christians got together and that was never a part of our conversation, wouldn't it? Um, anyway, let's keep going because that, that, that was a whole aside and I want to uh, keep moving on. Yes? Charlie. How do you avoid the problem of exclusivity and, and isolation? How do you avoid the problem of exclusivity and isolation? What problem? So if you're only associating with Christian people, is your mind closing off what other people have to offer who are not Christians? Or you have to offer them, yeah. So I touched on that earlier when I said that we have to be very careful of the company that we keep. But then Paul also lists in, in fact, I think I actually have the scripture here, 1 Corinthians 5.10, that he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, catch this, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's not saying don't have any association with anybody. He's saying be careful about what the be careful about yourself when you're in the presence of the company you keep. How much time you spend. I mean, I I would argue based on those two texts in scripture that the the larger proportion of your time should be spent with fellow believers. That you should not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's Hebrews 10:24 and 25, right? And so and so you and so. One, guard your heart, and two, be careful of your associations. And being exclusive, um, again, there's that word. Uh, being exclusive, when we're called to be inclusive as Christians, we're inviting people to the gospel. We're inviting people to come into Christian community and be transformed by God. But, that's, but being exclusive, I wouldn't argue that that's, a, that's the top-tier guidance of our actions. I think that that is something to pay attention to as we seek our primary actions, which are bringing people to the gospel of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think it's, it's something to pay attention to, but, I, but you've you got to kind of put that in its proper place in, in, the, in the hierarchy of what our call is. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, invite, invite, invite people here who aren't Christian. I can take an argument. Um, I won't give too much time to it, but you know, like there's, there, there, there are places for people to come together and ways to include them, but don't lose yourself in the process. Just don't do it. All right, let's move on. Um, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is, I'm going to call them all good ones. I'm going to be very repetitive. Uh, chapter 11 is a good one. Um, in this letter, he continues to counsel Wormwood on how best to take advantage of the patient's new relationships. And catch their description. They're described as scoffers and worldlings. This is basically part two to the other letter, right? Scoffers and worldlings. And he also then goes on to discuss the four sources of human laughter. Uh, joy, fun, the joke proper, and again, there's that word, flippancy. Right? So let's take a look at this, and then let's see what you all got out of it. Uh, here's my first question. 
he talks about these type of people, these scoffers and worldlings, right in the first paragraph, and he says, who without any spectacular, spectacular crimes are progressing quietly and comfortably towards our Father's house. So here's my question. How can someone progress quietly and comfortably towards hell without ever committing any spectacular crime? How does that happen? Quietly and comfortably. You move away from God? I th- you know, one of the things that I think we forget is we, we imagine that, we can, that there's such things as a static spiritual state. Or even a static physical state. Or even a static emotional state. Or even a static, you know, there is no static state, right? We're creatures of change. I mean, that's what, you know, that's also mentioned in, in this book, in screw tape Letters. We're creatures of change. You know, and the other ones are more noticeable, right? I have less hair this year than I had last year. My beard's a little bit more gray. Like, physical change is very obvious. Spiritual change, if we're not paying attention, is the one that can slip away the quickest, Right? Because if we, if, we never, if we never actually do a spiritual inventory, if we, if we don't pay attention to our prayer life, right, if we ignore all signs, which, again, we have a cause to ignore all signs, which we'll get to in one of these other letters, then it's really easy for us to slip. And so there's a couple ways I would argue that we can progress quietly and comfortably towards hell without, you know, murder. Um, one, it's never bending the knee nor asking for forgiveness, Right? If you never bend your knee, if you never ask God for forgiveness, or you regularly don't humble yourself and submit to Him and ask for forgiveness, that's a real easy way to quietly and comfortably slip. Second one, and this is what he talks about, there's, there's a ton, we don't have time to go through all of them. Another one is being a scoffer or being contemptuous. Being contemptuous. These are other ways that we can quietly go towards hell. Now, what's the danger of being a scoffer, do you think? Well, just by virtue of it, the definition of it, it's irreverent. Irreverent. It's cynical. It's pretty much cynical about anything beyond the worldly. So, in the context of him hanging around with these, these people, you know, he's going to start to take on those habits and take on those viewpoints. Yeah, he's progressing quite comfortably towards hell. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so, so, to, yeah, so to be irreverent, uh, you can also define a scoffer as one who mocks, ridicules, or scorns the belief of another. You don't have to have a substantive, substantive argument or worldview or philosophy or ethical system or really anything else to be a scoffer, right? You could, you could have nothing to you but being a scoffer and you could still scoff. Yes? I guess the best uh, example I have of somebody... That's who's progressing quietly towards hell. There's a quote I read about a professor who's an atheist, and he said, well, I've been a professor for 25 years, and if that's not good enough for God, so be it. Okay, so there's one. I, I have made this a confidence. I've been a professor for 25 years, and if that's not good enough, then forget it. Yeah, if my, life, if my life isn't up to your standards, well, it's forgetting your relation to God. You know, I think we forget this sometimes. We talk about relationship with God, right? You've heard that term in the church before? You have a personal relationship with God. You've heard that term before? Well, whether or not you have a personal relationship with God, you all have a relationship with God, right? Because a relationship is just the relation between two things, right? And so if God is here and you are here, you're still in relationship, right? There is a direct relation between the two of you. But if you don't acknowledge that where you are in relationship to God, you'll never get to the personal relationship with him. Do you guys follow me when I say that? 
If you don't, if you don't know where you are, I mean, he talks about this. C.S. Lewis also has this wonderful uh, essay in Mere Christianity or chapter called The Great Sin. And he talks about the problem with people who are proud. He says, you know, people who are proud are always so busy looking down on others that they never think to look up. Right? So if you never bend the knee, if you, never, if you don't know your relation to God and you don't look up, you're not, you're just, you're not going to be able to engage him on that level and, you, and you'll be set adrift. You'll set yourself adrift. Yes, Debbie. I'm using I'm using bend, I'm using bend the knee um, figuratively. Yes, I'm not. I'm. I mean, yes. It's. I mean, again, we talked about this the other week, right? C.S. Lewis says that we're uh, physical and spiritual beings, and so how we pray, how our posture is, does affect our prayer. I mean, there's a reason. Uh, did anybody go to my um, ordination a couple years ago? Uh, you'll notice that you know it was very odd to my um, to my uncle who is maybe a deist, um, that, I would be, that I would go and lay prostrate on the ground in front of everyone. You know, that's a bizarre thing, but posture matters. I mean, if you've never, by the way, if you've never prayed prostrate, I would, I would um, encourage you to try it even tonight. Just lay flat out before the Lord and, and see what the content of your prayer is. Because, I, because I, having prayed on my knees and standing just as you all have and kneeling and, and all, pretty much every position except upside down, um, you know, you'll notice that, that posture does have an effect. So anyway, kneeling just means, bending the knee, sorry, I was an aside, just means submitting, humbly submitting and, and knowing where you are. Um, so I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep moving along here. Uh, four causes of human laughter, right? He says, one is joy. And joy, joy is no good to, uh, to the other team, right? <laughs> Satan has no use for joy. Satan just doesn't have any use for it. You know, joy, you could think of it as substantive, as deep, as pure, as a wellspring. Like, we're going to talk about John 4 uh, this weekend. That's our passage, the woman at the well. Uh, the, you know, like that, that uh, Jesus says, you know, um, he'll be living water that just wells up. So that's the idea of joy is that well you can draw on. Um, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? So there's joy, there's fun. We all know fun, right? I hope we all know fun. Play, amusement, you know. Um, my oldest son, Gabriel, and I... Uh, I hope you never see us interact in public because he always calls us two silly gooses. He said, Dad, you and I are both silly gooses because we act ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun, right? Like we engage in play, um, amusement. And, and these are things, right? Like these are things, again, that, are, that he says are, are kind of hard for them to grasp onto, but then he goes to the joke proper, right? And he says this, humor is for them the all-consoling and the all-excusing grace of life. Hence, it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. Did you all think that that was pretty insightful? The joke proper? Have you ever been in a position where uh, somebody has said something that was, uh, you know, cutting and then followed up with a phrase that was just a joke? Anybody ever said it? I was, you know, like you realize, and you, you say it when you realize you overstep half the time. You're like... Just kidding. You know, it's like, oh, well, then that's fine. Everything. No, of course it's not. You know, that's not like a, it's not like the balm that covers everything that went before it. But he says this. He, what, and so my question is, follow-up question to that is, what does Screwtape mean? Uh, what does he mention can be passed off as humor? 
So specifically, let me say that again. What does Screwtape mention can be passed off as humor? You can look at, it's an open note test. What does, he, uh, what does he mention that can be passed off as humor here? He says a few things. So one thing is being cheap can be passed off as humor, right? He says being mean, right? So if you're, oh, you know, forgot my wallet again, ah, ha, ha, you, you know. He says um, cowardice can be passed off as humor. That's another example that he uses. Um, cruelty, as we know, practical jokes can be passed off as humor. Um, what else, what, is there anything else that you've seen that you could add to the list of things? Sarcasm, right? Sarcasm is, is, uh, can be passed off as humor. And sarcasm, I think, I would say, even flits flippancy, right? The right that sarcasm is flippancy. It's not, um, I think Oscar Wilde has a quote about sarcasm being the lowest form of humor. Um, you know, because it is. It's that, I wish I had it on me right now. But, um, but it is, it's that idea of, right, like, it's, it's cheap. Like, you... You get up there as a comedian, you're going to try to be sarcastic all the time, and you're never, you're never going to make it, because that's just a real, it's just cheap shots. Um, and what's, what's amazing about these things that are passed off as humor, right, we just talked about that, is if you decide to speak up and you say, you know, somebody says it's just a joke, and you're like, yeah, well, it was hurtful, and I wish you hadn't said that. You know, like, you, like call it out, you know? You know, like, I was, oh, I was just kidding. Kidding or not, what you said was you, you crossed the line. Yeah, but if everybody in the crowd's laughing... Oh, yeah, you're taking a risk. And that's what happens is as soon as you say that, guess who's at fault? And that's what's so bizarre about the whole thing. As soon as you say it, you're the one who's overstepped. You're the one who broke the social um, mores, right? You're the one who stepped out of line. And it's, isn't that bizarre? It's twisted. It's perverse. It's the what? Don Rickles moment. Don I'm too young. All right, let's be honest about this. All right? God gave me, gray, God gave me some gray hair so I could speak to you, but not enough. So, um, so anyway, yeah, so, so again, it, it, it's, but I would, but I would argue, I would, I would make this case, and you all feel free to disagree with me. Um, I think that there are times where it is appropriate to take offense at an offensive comment. And, you know, you can forgive the person, and you can be humble when you call them out on it, but I think, that you, I think there are times to be clear and truthful in your estimation. You know, over and over again, the Bible talks us, calls us to speak truthfully about things. And I think there's times where, do you, where you just say, listen, I'm, I'm not okay with what you just said. And let it be awkward. You're strong enough for that, aren't you? Yeah. <clears throat> if not, this world's a real hard place. All right. We have two chapters in six minutes. So here we go. Oh, we all know it was coming. All right. So, chapter, uh, chapter 12. Or letter 12. Uh, this is where Wormwood is making progress on getting the patient to, dr patient to drift away from God, but Screwtape cautions him, slow down. You don't want the pull to be too abrupt. Because otherwise he might realize what is happening. And he's saying, he also encourages the patient to retain only a dim uneasiness about his state. Stay in that fog. Remember we're talking about clarity versus being in a fog? Just retain some dim uneasiness of guilt without putting a finger on it. Uh, and here's, here's a quote. He says, um, this is uh, from the first paragraph of letter 12. He must be made, the patient, must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and revocable. He must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and irrevocable. So here's my question. Why is it to Satan's advantage to get us to believe this? Because 
Because then, then you keep doing it. Because you can fix it later, right? Has anybody ever engaged in something and you're like, oh, I did it again, but you know what? I'll just fix it next time. And you leave that situation alone. Maybe you've offended somebody or you have been angry or something and you, haven't, you have chosen not to repent. You have chosen not to apologize to that person. You've just decided that you're going to do better next time. And then you ignore the fact that it might have a long-term consequence for you. Has anybody ever done that? Okay, good. I, I know nobody in this room has done it, but some people, some people do. Um, no, that's our common response is, you know what, fine, forget it, I'll just do better next time. And we don't realize that we took a step. Remember, we're not static. And then what happens when you take the next step? Well, now you're in a different direction. Um, you know, and this is, this is also why that's not true, that it, that, um, that, that it's not true that these things are trivial and irrevocable. God is a person, and so our interactions with him are based on a relationship and not even merely outward or inward actions, right? If I continually come home late from work, you know, and leave my wife to take care of the kids and to get them to bed, you know, like, it makes a difference whether or not I did that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, Versus, you know, if I do it Monday and I repent and I, you know, amend my ways. Do you all follow me? And that's because I'm in a relationship with her. Being in a relationship with God is being in a relationship with a person. And you have to pay attention to how that, that relationship is being engaged with. So, you know, there are the regular ways of engage, engaging, prayer, scripture readings, church attendance, and serving others, they're all important, but they're not just external things that you check off that mean that you're good to go for the day, they're important as they are engagement with the person of God. you all follow me when I say that? So, you know, relationships work with people in our lives with this idea of it being a living thing. It's a living, breathing, organic, back and forth that happens. And it's not, you know, I haven't prayed for two months, but if I pray this time, then, you know, nothing, then that basically, like, makes everything else null and void in how I'm living my, my faith out. Does that make sense, everybody? It's cumulative. Now, a couple things scripture says. One, God's mercies are new every morning. Praise the Lord for that. Right? Praise the Lord. He's not going to be sitting back there being like, well, you haven't talked to me, so I'm just, you know, I'm, out, I'm over here until you figure yourself out. That's not who God is. But it certainly affects our ability to engage with him and who our, where our hearts are in that relationship. You all follow me when I say that? Each, each step matters. I mean, and, and sanctification is the same way. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. This is beautiful. This is how Paul, sanctification is how we are in the process of growing in faith and spirituality and morality and all the things that make us Christian, closer to God. That's sanctification, right? Basically, like how we are growing into him. And this is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says about sanctification. And we, so again, the opposite of falling away, this is going towards God. And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we engage with God, we are being transformed from one degree to the other. You all familiar with protractors? You remember those? Right? You got a protractor. I'm going to draw a little thing inside so we know it's a protractor. And you got degrees, right? And you have lines that you draw in a certain degree. And then you, you, you change it, right? You, you, you change one degree. And right here, it's almost the exact same line, isn't it? And then as it goes, it continues, and it continues, and it continues. Well, if you trace that string out far enough, 
and you just keep walking holding that string, and one person walks and holds the other string attached to the protractor, and it's one degree apart, and you check in on them 20 minutes later, an hour later, five years later, you'll notice that one degree of change is incredibly significant, isn't it? Now, we would all like to have, you know, we're instant, grat you know, instant gratification people, right? Like, we would rather just have, like, holy, right? Like, I did it, I'm there. But just as sanctification is by degrees, slipping away from God is by degrees. Now, there's grace. It's not a mathematical formula. Hear me when I say this. It's not a mathematical formula. It is not precisely the same going away versus coming to God. It's a person. It's a relationship. It's living and breathing. I do this to illustrate the point that check, like, if you start really straying, right, and you strayed for a long time, God and his grace might very well, like, radically alter your course to bring you back online, right? He can do that. But it's still something worth paying attention to. You all follow me when I say that? you have any questions or thoughts about that idea? None? Good. You got, I think the reason you're doing that is so we can get through the rest of it. So I appreciate that. Originally, Father Chris said that this could go up to 515, right? That was like the maximum you guys, you were all in the same understanding of that? Okay. I believe, I believe that that's what the uh, letter said. I should know, but I do believe that's what it said. <clears throat> so. It did say that, and I'm leaving because I have another, I have an appointment. I have offended Janie Binion, and she's leaving, she said. No, I'm kidding. She's, she has an appointment. She's, I am kidding. Sorry, they can't hear you, but they can hear me, so. Um, Yes, okay, so a couple of other things I want to touch on in this chapter before we close out. Uh, look at this next quote. Um, this is when talking about the patient's dim unease due to his sinful state, Screwtape says, when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance is increased tenfold. So when you have all this unease and guilt, then thinking about God increases that tenfold, and you, then thinking about God increases your reluctance to engage with him, right? If you have a bunch of sin that you're not dealing with, that you're not repenting of, that you're not bringing for the Lord, you're much less likely to engage with him. Have you all experienced that? You know, and it feels like a huge burden, right? It feels cumulative, it feels cumulative because then you get to the point where you're like, well, maybe I just shouldn't, you know, maybe I just shouldn't pray because, you know, it's kind of like, um, have you ever been in that situation where you've done something wrong and you know that the other person knows you've done something wrong and no one's talking about it? And so you're like, well, we'll just keep kind of doing our own thing because we really don't want to open this can of worms. Has anybody ever been there? Yeah, that's a universal thing, right? And so you just, you just continue to avoid the subject and you're hoping eventually it dies down, but there's a real break in relationship and desire to engage with that person. But even somebody you love, like when you're a kid, you do something wrong and uh, you know your parents found out about it, but you haven't gone home yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you avoid going home. You're like, parents know, so I'll stay out late tonight. Um, <laughs> no, but it's true. And, and what's interesting is when you're the person in authority in those situations, the most healing, helpful thing that you can do, right, and you all know this, is to bring that to light in a, in a way that offers a path to redemption, right? Say you know that somebody did something wrong to you. The best thing that you can do is bring that to their attention in a kind and loving way that still speaks about the wrong but doesn't just let it simmer and grow and fester, right? 
The opposite of that is called a silent treatment, and it's, it's a real cruel way to play with people, by the way. That's a cruel way to punish people. The best way to do that is to do that. And so what this man is doing is he's, what screw tape is doing is he's trying to get this man from experiencing that bond with God because we all know, I mean, again, we're preaching at the woman at the well. Jesus, what Jesus does to the woman at the well in John 4 is fascinating, right? This woman, she has, uh, you know, she, she's talking to Jesus. He offers her living water. She accepts it. And then the very next thing Jesus says is, bring your husband. Well, as Jesus well knows, She's had five husbands, and the one that she's with now is not even her husband. He knows that. And that seems like a really rude thing to say, right? She's saying she wants living water, and Jesus is like, well, go get your husband and bring him here. It's like, that seems kind of like a rude non sequitur, doesn't it? But what Jesus is doing is in order to reestablish that, he's taking what she is most ashamed of, what she most wants to hide from him, and she's bringing it into the open so it can heal. You can't attain the living water without bringing these things into the open so they can heal. There's a word for that. Do you know what that word, that word is? It's, con- it's repentance. Right? Confession and repentance. And as long as you just walk around with a vague sense of guilt and uneasiness, you'll never get to that place where God can get even to those parts of you. Does that make sense, everybody? He can't... He can't if you don't, he can. He can do whatever he wants to do. But if you don't allow him to get to those places, you won't have the cleansing effect. You know, one of the things, in, and I might talk about this Sunday too, in the Episcopal Church that we don't, we have as a rich part of our tradition, and we don't take advantage of nearly enough, are private confessions. Do you know that? You know that, like, we do those too? And the reason that we do those is because it is incredibly powerful when you can bring your, your actual self, your full actual self, and speak it into existence and have a priest absolve you of the sins because God has absolved you because of your repentance and confession. We're conduits for that forgiveness, right? But sometimes it's incredibly helpful to hear those words out loud. You know, some of those powerful spiritual places that I've ever seen, because we... we uh, we had to join these groups for part of seminary, uh, our AA groups. You'll hear me mention them in the sermons. It's because my experience with them has been really powerful. Because you have a, a room full of people who, who feel confident in pulling out the very depths of, who, of their brokenness and laying it in front of people and experiencing not, um, you know, a blasé response of like, um, you know, don't worry about it, it's fine, everything's okay. But, but knowing the hurt that you're bringing up, knowing the pain that it costs you and the people that you hurt, and accepting you anyway. That's the level of spirituality that the church should be the best about. Do we agree about that? I mean, that's who we are as Christians. We're, all, we're the group that says, yeah, we screwed up and we need God to fill those spaces. And as long as Satan can keep you from going, from a lot, from, um, bringing those, the depths of that pain to the surface, you will, you, will, you will have a very shallow prayer life, a very shallow experience in church, and um, possibly very shallow engagement with other Christians because you don't, want to, you don't want to go there. Does that make sense, everybody? Have you seen this play out in anybody? I mean, maybe in your own life at one point? I have. So again, you've got you to look at Satan's tactics and, and go for the opposite tack. And, and you know, he kind of ends with this uh, quote that I think is really, again, really profound. I now see 
He says, one of Screwtape's patients, right? He got him in. And the Screwtape's patient, looking back on his life, says, I now see that I spend most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Going back to the purpose and mission of what it is to be a Christian, of what our lives are focused around, especially in this, this day and age of um, computers at your fingertips, where, by the way, they've designed endless scrolling because they know that that causes psychological dependence. That was based on a study that shows that if you, if you have the ability to keep scrolling, you will. That's why they have push notifications, by the way. Those were designed in order to create psychological dependence and distraction if you keep having all of these things pop up. That's why the average person spends less than four minutes engaging in any activity that requires mental concentration without checking their phone. Less than four minutes. Isn't that absurd? That's why our attention spans have gone from, in only a few years, 12 seconds to eight seconds, which is less than the attention span of a goldfish, by the way. A goldfish ostensibly have nine seconds of attention span. I don't know how they calculated that, but they did. <laughs> so again, distractions, right? Pulling us away from these things, keeping these constant bombardments, living in this vague sense of unease, and not putting our finger on what's actually affecting us. You guys, you guys follow that? Like, this is a real tactic, and we have to be aware of it. We can't pretend that any of the things that we engage in or use aren't affecting us. Um, and you see, especially for kids, right? Teens are up to seven and a half hours, seven plus hours per day on screen media for entertainment, not school or homework. It's crazy. So again, and we all have time sinks, right? It doesn't have to be technology. It can be anything else. It reminds me of this great quote by D.L. Moody. He says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And if you spend your life aimed in the wrong direction, that's exactly what will happen. All right, last one. we got five minutes, and I'm going to honor your time. So um, here we go. Chapter 13. What happened? It does tell what you were saying about the guy not doing what he wanted to. Those tells right into what got this guy back to God. Yes. He just did something of the simple pleasures that... He did something he wanted to do. Yes, yeah, he actually wanted to do. Like taking a walk or yeah. Walk and brought him right back and made him realize all the crap he was doing. Yeah, so he, he, he had fallen away and then that simple, doing that simple thing brought him right back, right? So basically, long story short, um, Wormwood messed up, right? And now the patient has experienced what? What did he experience? What do they call it? A second conversion, right? We would call it like a rededication. It's the idea of like, you know, recommitting yourself to the Lord. Uh, you know, we don't believe in, you know, we, we believe in baptizing yourself one time. We don't get baptized every time we feel guilty and want to recommit ourselves to the Lord. But what we do in community, whenever somebody is baptized, we restate our baptismal vows. That's a real opportunity for this moment as well, right? When we stand up in community and we experience a rededication. And so, so the patient experiences this great rededication. And um, Wormwood gets frustrated because if you look on the beginning of the second paragraph, it says, Screwtape's writing, and he says, As you ought to have known, the asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. What's that asphyxiating cloud, do you think? Grace. Grace? Joy. Joy? I thought it was the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
I would, I would bet that, and again, this is fiction, right? I would bet that what he's referring to is the Holy Spirit, which, in, 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 which is you know, one of the amazing things of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, one, is the only person of the Trinity that's gender neutral. I don't know if you know that. It's always referred to as it and not um, he. I don't know why that is, but it's, I would guess it's because the Holy Spirit is always pointing people in the direction of God and never to itself. The Holy Spirit acts as kind of a conduit between us and the Father, right? That's one of the roles. And, and so, um, and being a conduit, we experience joy through the Holy Spirit. We experience grace through the Holy Spirit. And when we're in the Holy Spirit, um, we're untouchable, right? When you're keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is what 2 Timothy 1.14 says. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do you guard the good deposit? That is your faith, your salvation that's been entrusted to you. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. There is, as he describes this asphyxiating cloud, this layer of protection when we're keeping in step with the Spirit. And, excuse me. Um, and this idea of, of staying in step with the Holy Spirit should also give new light to this other verse. This one's from Ephesians 4.30. There's a warning in Ephesians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So again, keep in step with the Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't purposely engage with sin, but stay in that relationship with the Holy Spirit. Y'all follow me when I say that? I mean, it's, it, it really gives us a, a, a greater sense of what the Holy Spirit's role is in our lives. Does anybody have any thoughts about that? You're talking about Holy Spirit. I mean, Holy Spirit, Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God, and it's about the Holy Spirit. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we don't talk about him much. Because whenever you hear about the Holy Spirit, it much. Whenever you hear about the Holy Spirit, you're worried about charismatics, you know, waving flags. And if you are charismatic, apologies. Uh, kind of. Um, but anyway, you know, like... like um, and I'm using that in a joking way. But that is, you know, like Holy Spirit is a strong part of our, uh, being a charismatic is a strong part of our tradition. Experiencing the gifts of the Holy Spirit is a strong part of the Episcopal tradition. Anybody have any thoughts on the Holy Spirit before we move on? We've got zero time. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and close out. If you're reviewing or if you decide to go back and touch on chapter 13 again, uh, I really, a lot of these are connected. I would encourage you to look at again how one of the devil's tactics is to keep us from experiencing the real, but keep us in the fictional uh, area. I would encourage you to look at the difference between the detachment from ourselves that God wants us to experience and the detachment from ourselves that the devil wants us to experience, right? Satan doesn't want us to be in touch with where we are or how we're feeling at any particular moment because he wants, he wants us to be able to fall off the path right, without noticing. But what God wants is a sense of humility. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, I'm going to quote him again in reference to himself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking, think about that quote in terms of the detachment that God is calling us to have in chapter 13. That's all I got. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you again for this time that we have together. I pray that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us of those areas that we need to be attentive to, that you would uncover any of the areas that have been obscured either by the world, the flesh, or the devil, and that we would know our adversaries and those who would pull us from you. Help us to remember, God, that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, 
for our souls and for the souls of others, that it is a very serious thing to walk the Christian life. And God, I pray for your blessing and protection upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would guard us and keep us safe. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.